Hi, I'm Adam Williams, creator and host of Humanitu, a podcast that empowers connection through conversations of humanness and creativity. Today I'm talking with Kate Perdoni. Kate is an Emmy-nominated producer and director, a writer and filmmaker, a television host with Rocky Mountain PBS, and a rock musician, currently in the band Spirits. She's performed, recorded, and toured near and far with her music. Kate shares her story of growing up in poverty on a 40-acre vegetable farm in remote Minnesota. She tells of leaving home for college at 16 and the importance of the winding road she took to finish college several years and a few schools later at 23. Kate has adventurously flowed back and forth across the country over the years, experiencing new cities and cultures, van breakdowns, and new starts. She has worked in various forms of journalism and media, has given birth to rock bands, and to a son who, now nine years old, has taken to the backstage life with his mom. We'll get into some of those stories, and along the way, we'll hear Kate's insights about trusting one's inner voice, about self-validation, and about exploring curiosity. We'll talk about the value of silence, and Kate's definition and experience of God. And of course, we'll talk about a whole lot more. Let's get into it. My conversation with Kate Perdoni. Kate Perdoni, it's wonderful to have you with the Humanity Podcast. Thank you for being here. Hi, Adam. Good morning. Thank you. Or good afternoon, I should say. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because the first question I was going to ask you is how you've been doing with this COVID-19 social distancing, stay at home thing. And, you know, losing track of time and days to me has been one of the key features. Yeah. I have heard that uh, resoundingly among pretty much everyone I've spoken to. Uh, one of my coworkers said that her uh, child's teacher says the date and the day of the week each morning at the beginning of their school period online. And if not for that, she probably would have no context. I was wondering, related to this period, you know, with you being among many things, a uh, rock musician, part of a band, you get out and play some amazing places. And I'm guessing that you probably have had some gigs postponed, canceled, and again, you do a lot of things. So, uh, you know, will you give me a little temperature on what you have been experiencing through this time as a multifaceted creative person? Yeah, I definitely like my personal financial and livelihood loss is minimal because although music is a passion and hobby and something I do and as a career as well, it's not the primary source of my income. So okay. that right away takes a lot of stress off of me, whereas a lot of my friends and friend fam, friends who are also family, are experiencing a lot more of that hardship than I am. So kudos to them for getting creative and doing amazing online and other things um, and for just surviving and using this time to create. Um, but for myself, yeah, we had, I was really looking forward to Tree Fort Music Festival up in Boise, the, the community and celebration surrounding that and bringing my son because it's incredibly family friendly. And um, same for, you know, like our local festivals like UMS. I'm not sure what their decision will be um, as of right now. I think they haven't announced officially, but that's at the end of the ju July. And I think it's just um, a lot of, well, we're finding new ways to collect ourselves and create community. Some of the other older ways of creating community, we may mourn. Just a lot of these festivals and, you know, music and art as a whole is a celebration of life. So we mourn our, those routine um, celebrations. Yeah, absolutely. There's been, I think mourn and mourning and grief are absolutely appropriate words for all of this. And we all have our own experiences of it, right? Because even households that don't have maybe the 
the illness within it from the virus itself, or, you know, not all of us have, um, you know, fortunately, we, we've not all had to experience the same types of hardships, but yet we all have had this experience, I think, emotionally of this uprooting of life. And, uh, you know, I kind of look at it as a chance to step back and breathe and reevaluate some things in life a little bit. That is when I'm at my better moments and I can look at it in that positive way. Has that been your experience at all? Do you think, is this going to be a return back to normal, so to speak, or are we going forward with any new perspective based on this global pandemic experience? Yeah, totally. It's almost like this has been an excuse to reprioritize and to really find what does bring you joy and what you can't live without. I have a post-it on my desk of people and things that I miss, and I kind of have this unspoken promise to myself that I won't do anything that's not on that post-it anymore. Um, For me personally, it's a huge decrease in social anxiety, which I didn't realize was such a huge I've always known I was an anxious person, but until this time, I didn't realize just how much that played into my everyday sphere. So it has been a recalibration and a welcome one for me as I get more in touch with um, who I really am, where am I best serving, you know, my community and my world, um, all of those things, a lot of which came to light naturally out of the crisis of the imminent situation, especially because my post is in the media realm and other things personally that I've been taking the time to cultivate and really spend time with. And the continuity of being able to do that from day to day is something I've not had the luxury of before. I think we both recognize that this really is, it's a fortunate position. It sounds like that we both are in then, and maybe even a privileged one that, that we're able to keep going and have uh you know, reasonable amount of our livelihood intact and those things. So the burden is largely emotional. It's not to downplay that, but yeah, I, I feel for all the people out there who are having a harder time as I'm sure you do. Yeah, I feel entirely privileged for many weeks, especially in the beginning. It was very difficult for me to reconcile my feelings of guilt for having a job and for, oh, yeah. me, you know, to, to not have my life disrupted is a giant privilege. I am the most privileged person in a lot of ways. So I, ha- yeah, like, thank you for recognizing that where the place I'm speaking from, I mean, self-care is a luxury, self actualization is a luxury. Being able to look at your life and wonder about it is such a luxury. It's not something people get to do in times of war or crisis. And that's where a lot of our population is. So to have this conversation, you know, we are really, we are really privileged. And um, yeah, I think what we do to eliminate or um, alchemize that gap of privilege is really where it's at. Moving on here, you do many things. Like I already mentioned, you have many creative interests and talents. And you're out there in the world as, like I said, a rock musician and a vocalist in a band called Spirits. You're a PBS television writer, director, producer, host, documentary filmmaker. You publish a zine. And I'm sure there are a lot of things that uh, I'm leaving off the list that I don't even know to add to the list that you already uh, have done before, like freelance print journalism, being a public radio show host. This is a pretty amazing list, by the way. I'm wondering if you're familiar with the term multipotentialite. I don't think I've heard that term. I'm going to say it's basically living the opposite of the thing we were told to do, which was, do you know what I'm going to fill in the blank here with? Pick a lane and stick with it. (laughs) Choose that one job. Know what it is. And when people start asking you that question, when you're a child, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's already starting to teach us. Pick that one thing, right? Multipotentialite is like it sounds 
you have potentials and interests and skills, and you want to pursue these things in different areas, a broad range, perhaps. Maybe it's only two areas, maybe it's 10. And I feel like you fit that description. You do so many things. So I'm curious about that experience. I just rambled off so many things that are part of your creative output and engagement in the world. And I'm wondering how you juggle all that creatively and in the world that says pick a lane. That's such a great question. It's so funny because I feel like I did pick a lane. I always had a North Star, something that I was driving toward. I don't know that anyone else could see that lane or that it was a lane on the road, (laughs) but um, I've judged or, you know, kind of interpreted my life as like the closer I can get to all of my hobbies and interests and undertakings in the world being toward the same thing. And that thing could be defined as God or revolution or social justice or, you know, creativity, um, you know, the sun, there's so many like metaphors or allegorical kind of stories for it, but, um, whatever that means to me or whatever that means to anyone, um, from a very young age, I've always been doing the same things, you know, music, writing, kind of journalism, media, communications. All of those were very early passions of mine, literally since I can remember. And they're all threads that have followed through to now that I'm 36. And when I was going to college, there was no, I I went to four undergraduate schools. I started going to college when I was 16. Um, I didn't, I dropped out of college many, many times, switched, you know, uh, vocations and degrees, you know, as I recognized that there wasn't necessarily something that was going to tie all of these things together. I did end up with a journalism degree, which I think serves me the best in all these capacities. It sounds like from what what you're saying is that you do see all of that being as part of the same lane, and I'll then describe it as a broad lane, whereas I could say something similar. I I don't think I have as many talents as you do, but I have worked with writing and photography and now audio and, and some different things that are all part of media in some form. And so you can see how they dovetail together, and it can be a benefit, I think, to have those complementary skills. But obviously, the world also has plenty of specialists, a a writer, a journalist uh, in that lane. A separate one is in photojournalism. Another one might be with video or audio. In my mind, anyway, while I can see how they all go together, I have asked probably, you know, countless times myself this question. You know, if I dropped X to specialize in Y, maybe I'd be able to accomplish this or that amazing whatever that is, or maybe I'd be able to compete better and not feel so, uh, like I'm falling short of, wow, that photojournalist work is so amazing. Maybe I should have pursued this part of my life a little harder. I'm just wondering if that's a question you've ever struggled with internally or felt pressure from outside for. Yeah, I definitely have felt lots of pressure. I don't know how much of that is real and how much is just the internalized kind of, you know, um, capital racialized capitalistic structure that's been uh squeezing my insides you know with um kind of that delicate balance of where we're at now which is you know the tepid balance of things being broken or being about to crack or kind of that tenseness of um the systemic uh kind of 
vibe of everything. So yeah, there's less so for, you know, hopefully the generations after ours, but there is that pressure that life is supposed to be one thing. I think for my parents' generation, that made more sense or they were, you know, in fear of a different set of things that I did not have to worry about or that I chose not to worry about, you know, when I was born in the 80s and continue through life. I guess for our generation, I saw and see a great opportunity for us to kind of the buck stops here when it comes to a lot of those types of outside forces dictating what we do with our lives. For example, with my son, you know, he has said to me multiple times, whether we're watching a movie or from what he sees in his life, you know, he says, thank you for not being a parent who is trying to decide for me what I do with my life. Or he said to me, you know, are you going to, you know, you don't seem like the kind of parent who would want me to go to college to be a specific thing. And I'm like, yeah, buddy, you know, if they even have college by the time you're ready to go, you can choose whatever you want to do. And he's just like, thank you, mom. Like he already is thanking me and recognizing that that's not going to be an issue for him, but it was an issue for me. And I can only say that I, for whatever reason, have really trusted an intrinsic inner voice that has been my calling. And there's a reason that I'm now, you know, I'm an artist who hosts an art show, which I was chosen for that role because I'm an artist. So I've created a situation where I get to do media all day. There's so many things I love to do and I get to do them all in my job. And I've just kind of manifested and worked toward a situation where it's all kind of held in the same container. I just think that's incredible. Anytime that we can align what it is that we feel is really who we are with our livelihood. And and because of course we have to look out for that piece too. Yeah. 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 So you you mentioned this intrinsic quality within you and following that. And the word that I had had in mind or occasionally come back to is that I think it somehow comes down to permission. And sometimes, you know, when, if we speak of generalizing here, the older generations and how they felt like this is the system and we're supposed to fit into it. Well, that permission was coming from somewhere external. And what I'm personally am working on now is continuing to remember, but we have the permission, the only permission we truly need internally. But I think an awful lot of us are not getting that teaching. And and like what you're teaching your son, it sounds like is to have that strength and to follow your own heart. And um, it sounds like you have done a very good job of finding your way with that. And my son helps. It's so interesting that you say that. Yeah, it is all about permission. And it's interesting to think about that on a societal level and a personal level and how one is internalized into the other. And I've been doing a ton of work there too, so I can totally relate. It's permission to be myself within my vocation and occupation and just to take a stand for my opinion matters or you know, to be able to implement what I've learned in my life in professional and other realms. And just the self-validation piece to not look outward for directions or signs or messages from other humans or whatever, you know, that are going to dictate how I feel about myself or what someone else can provide for me to be able to ground and core and self-resource everything that I need so that I don't have to have any kind of lack or a discrepancy there right off the bat. And then from there, we can go into a lot more enriched and healthy places. Any conversation or any work that I do is going to be a lot more fulfilling and just better if I am already kind of working on that subliminal piece beneath the surface. Yeah. Yeah. How old is your son? He's nine. He just turned nine. Okay. I have two sons and they are seven and nine. Cool. So we have that in common. And and speaking of 
the children, I want to go step back a little bit into your childhood and come from there. Because I think, uh, you know, my understanding is from your early story that you started really early exploring creativity in a variety of facets, um, some of the things you've already mentioned. And you've also uh, said before that you grew up in poverty, working the fields of your family's 40-acre organic vegetable farm. And you had parents and siblings, right? You had siblings, is yep. that correct? Yeah, two brothers. I'm, I'm in the middle. Okay. But you've described uh, some of that childhood as being lonely, and it sounds like you turned to creative exploration as, I don't know, was it, would you call it an escape or uh, what, what was that? What was your experience growing up and connecting with your creative self? Ooh, I, I think it was an enhancement because I was left to my own devices and had, I mean, this, honestly, this lifestyle right now very much mimics a lot of my childhood and how I grew up, which was living in isolation. We lived uh, 20 miles away from the nearest town of, I think, 400 people. You know, groceries was like a whole day's adventure. It was very like Little House on the Prairie in a lot of ways. So I didn't see people other than my family for weeks or months on end, sometimes in the summer or whatever, maybe not months. But yeah, this is very much of hearkening to those times. And what's created in that space, especially as you know, the only girl in a very masculine inclined family, and my mom, of course, but it's a very, you know... A very rugged lifestyle, you know, on the farm. And in the off times where there wasn't some work to be done or where I found a time to, for myself, it was always based in creativity. I think a lot of that was just experimentation with, I have all this time on my hands and you can create so much out of nothing, you know, both on a farm context and, you know, within a creativity context, you're always just making things out of nothing, um, and I think, you know, the farming thing is just an interesting mirror because what resourced me growing up on a farm is very much what resources me creative, creatively, work ethic, and just the notion that you're given a certain set of things and you have to create something out of it, or you have to be, you have to wear many hats. You know, you're the business on the farm, you're the business person, and you are the mechanic and the agronomist and the, you know botanist and the so many different things uh the engineer um the caretaker the steward of the land and the animals there's so many components to it you're the veterinarian often so to have to be all those different things just kind of pushes your your boundaries of what's possible i think there's something about the hands-on uh you know getting in the dirt for one but working with the animals being a problem solver I, I grew up in a rural town of less than 6,000 people in Northern Missouri, and I was not a farm kid. My parents were teachers. We lived in town. And so I have some familiarity with that lifestyle, but I don't have the experience, which to me also means I didn't, I didn't learn those things that it sounds like you have. And I, I think there's a lot of lessons that surely provide some, um, some grit and sustenance throughout a lifetime. Does that sound fair? Is there something beyond what you've already even said that you kind of one nugget that you just hold at the core as you go through life, even if that's just the sense of grit to make it through something? Oh yeah. Stubbornness to a fault. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you look at a big hay bale or a big bag of feed for an animal and you're like, well, I got to move that from point A to point B and it's just me. So, I mean, that's definitely carried into adulthood. You can ask anyone who knows me. 
<laughs> I think that get it done quality is is invaluable. It's something I'm trying to get our sons, uh, one of them in particular, maybe that's not his favorite thing. He'd rather just walk away from it. And and I keep trying to instill in him, you've got to be willing to to solve a problem and put something into it and get through it, right? Yeah. And that's the thing. It's like, what puts you in a situation where you have to figure that stuff out? Well, it's usually not very comfortable or pleasant scenarios where you're forced to do things like that. But right, yeah, it is that grit and that fortitude that I am so exceptionally just thankful to have. Yes. If I had not grown up on a farm, there are so many things that would not have been, no pun intended, cultivated in my life. <laughs> and I just look back on that as such a grace. And I think the number one thing I carried with me, which was also very much instilled with, in me before I lived in Minnesota, I lived in Bucks County, Pennsylvania on the Delaware River, very much grew up in nature and woods and that continued through my life. So just that convening with nature and like, especially on the farm in Minnesota, the silence, like what the value of silence is and really being able to listen to nothing and to feel the earth and to feel each vibration and each change in things because you have that relationship with the earth and the growing season and the weather really being having time to explore and tap into those sensory and like other experiences because of the quiet like that was something to really take advantage of so I feel really lucky to have that as my norm and I can feel when I'm straying away from it and that's been a constant process of returning you know to that over and over again in life I think that ability to sit with oneself and be okay, maybe even enjoy it, is something that is especially key with what we're all experiencing right now, where we have been told stay at home for a number of weeks, where we're all having to be contained, whether alone or with just our family and not have the constant flow in and out. Uh, I think that that, you know, I wonder if a lot of people are coming to have to recognize, you know what, I'm, I'm being confronted with myself here. And I, I'm wondering if if this coronavirus situation in any way will have positive in that regard as well. But I, I love silence myself. Yeah, I'm really reacquainting myself with that. Almost, you know, and I could just go forever with it. There's, it's so deep, and there's so much there. But I, I imagine if you don't like that, or you're, it's unsettling to you, or if you haven't done a lot of self processing, you could be faced with some really gnarly stuff. And I hope that we're able to resource ourselves and our friends and, and to reach out when we need it and to recognize that, yeah, even though we're all at very different stages and experiences in this, we are also all here for each other. And that's something that you, Adam, on your show and through your media just have always exemplified and why I am so honored that we're, I'm talking to you today. And I have admired your work for so long because it exemplifies that quality of recognizing and the remembrance that we're all in this together, that we have each other's backs and that we come from a community and we choose to live here because of the people and the experiences we have. And you showcase those and it really weaves together our interconnectedness and our availability at times like this to show up for each other. Oh, thank you so much. Um, yeah, it's it's been an exercise for me at, at using humanity as a means to reach out with people, but always with the idea that we can connect to each other. So I, I certainly hope that that's what is happening through and through. You know, I want to talk about when you're a little bit older then, and you were within reach where you lived though of Minneapolis, right? I mean, when I say within reach, I mean, I think it might've been a good distance, but um, <laughs> you were able to at least 
get there and explore something else. Is that right? Oh yeah, it was. It was three and a half hours away, but I would go for shows and luckily I had older friends who were in college there. So yes, it was a oft escape and a respite, like culturally for sure. Well, I was just going to ask what you, what it is that you would go there for? What would you go looking for to experience, to bring into your life that was surely such a contrast to your experience 20 miles away from the nearest town of only 400? For sure. And I do want to give props to rural Minnesota. And Minnesota in general is an extraordinary state for the arts, the public funding and the grant programs and the artistry when I was growing up in rural places was like obscenely amazing. So I do want to throw out that even though I lived in a rural space, in hindsight, it's incredible incredible to me what I was like still able to experience. And I know that's probably not the norm either, but we had a phenomenal theater company. And so I was involved in theater productions my whole life. Um, and my school had all kinds of arts programs and speech and one at play and was very theatrical. Um, music wise, I was mostly just playing for myself in my bedroom, but there were, you know, there was a coffee shop <laughs> um, in the near, you know, in a college town that was like an hour away. So I just wanted to preface this by I will never diss on Minneapolis for being a cultural like wasteland or anything because it was wonderful. But Minneapolis gave me just like a bigger context for that. It was mostly music shows. You know, I snuck into um, First Avenue when I was like 15 to see Mud Honey and stuff like that just to go see things that weren't going to come my way. Right. They weren't going to find you out there on the, the planes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that sounds amazing because I was like three hours away from St. Louis, three hours away from Kansas City, but I did not find my way to those places. And I'm I'm a little curious. I don't know that there's an answer you have for this. I'm a little curious what the difference was between you and me, you going and finding and connecting with those things and me not. And, and maybe I'm wondering if that was something tenacious in you or something you identified in yourself as I've got to go be part of that. And you already kind of knew something about yourself, or maybe I just was afraid to break the rules. Yeah, I was definitely searching for something and I definitely had and still sometimes catch myself in this narrative that I'm different and I'm this alien and no one understands me. So there's definitely this feeling, which I know a lot of teenagers and beyond go through and young people of not belonging. Um, I, I had some people who were my people, but I didn't really have a lot of peers in my age range that I connected with for whatever reason. Um, so most of my friends were usually older. And then when they graduated and left, you know, that's why I went to college early because I didn't really have anything, le anybody left. Um, but I definitely wanted to explore. So it was really that feeling of like, well, if this, you know, if, if this doesn't fit or this doesn't feel like me, what does feel like me? Okay. For me, a lot of that drive was musical because I loved rock and roll and there just wasn't that where I was living for sure. There were no outlets to see music of the kind of music that I liked. So I think, I, honestly, primarily it was to go see shows. Um, a lot of the bands that I loved would play these great clubs in Minneapolis. Um, there was The Quest, which I don't think is there anymore, but it was an all-ages club. And I saw so many shows there that, yeah, that was really what lit me up as a kid. Did your parents care that you were going? Did they know that you were going? Who knows? As the middle child and also just... Yeah, I don't even know. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I don't even know what they were. Sometimes I just wonder that myself, like, were they even paying attention? And there was a lot going on, you know. What was going on? Do you mind sharing? Like, what what was swirling around you? 
Yeah. I mean, running a farm, there was a lot of stress. Their marriage was never healthy. So there was a lot of volatile behaviors and just really unhealthy kind of vibes and, and scenarios most of the time. Uh, just a lot of, um, you know, kind of unhealthy, unhappy family stuff in many contexts. So I think there was a lot of distraction there, you know, with having three children, I think the attention probably gets dispersed. Also, they'd probably given up because they realized I was just going to do whatever I wanted anyway. And I think there's a big piece of it that's like, because I got straight A's and was really involved and had a lot going on, you know, they were willing to forgive my rambunctious nature, or maybe they, because I was responsible, they just kind of let me do my own thing. There's a lot of things that I did when I was a kid that I look back on as, as do probably a lot of people. And you're just like, how, why was I in that situation? Or that wasn't safe or never let my kid do that. Well, things that we look back at now and we're like, uh, what were we thinking? And just glad that we survived. For sure. For sure. So there's a lot of responsibility that's put on you sometimes at a young age, especially on the farm. So maybe that responsibility transposed into them letting me do things that wouldn't have been typical for most kids my age, because what I was being asked to do was not typical for most kids my age. Well, and at 16, you then lit out for a new world, a new life, mustered your own courage and went off to college early. And that led to several years. It sounds like you had some different schools in and out of school. I think music was part of that, right? And ultimately finished school at 23. Is that right? Yeah. So that's a seven-ish year period. And it sounds like it probably was pretty interesting. And I think probably pretty key in development in terms of you and bands and, and leading up to where you are now. Is there something there to speak of and what maybe you learned during that experience or just a memorable story while we're on the, the line of thought about childhood stories. And I can't believe I did that. Yeah. It was always music. And now that you're saying that it's dawning on me and maybe I've thought of this before, but the thread was always music for sure. When I was able to go to college, you know, as a teenager, um, That was another awesome thing the state of Minnesota had, probably still has a program that if you're under 18 years old um, and you test out and, you know, your parents sign the form, the state of Minnesota will pay um, for your books and tuition um, to attend college. So for two years, I just had to pay room and board. So I worked. I was always working. Yeah, just really phenomenal opportunities like that. But anyway, getting back to the thread. Yeah, music, I was really found my people when I went to college at 16 with my acoustic guitar and meeting all kinds of great other musicians, made some really wonderful friends, played in a lot of bands, went on a lot of traveling trips to go record and go on tour and and be in these different bands and have these different musical experiences. So music was always like a driving force because the impetus of music is that you can travel with it and you can use it as a tool to go explore other places, which is also how I feel about journalism. So I have these two kind of occupations, music and journalism, that both are very much lend themselves toward curiosity and exploration and just taking kind of your show on the road. So I was always traveling. Um, When I was 18 and legally could leave Minnesota, I went to go live in LA and went to um, college at Whittier College, um, where I had a theater scholarship and also played tons of music and used that, you know, as kind of my outpost for a lot of creativity. I met 
uh, an extraordinary group of artists and people who I am still like best friends with today. So some really important connections. I eventually moved back to Minneapolis and uh, went to journalism school and then quit to go on tour with a band. And on that particular trip, uh, our van broke down in Taos, New Mexico, and I didn't want to leave. And that was, I was 21. I think I just turned 21 or I was 21. And I that thus began my career <laughs> as a Coloradan. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I would say music has always been what has kind of swung me around and kept me traveling and kept me on my toes and allowed me to explore new places. And in between then and now, it's continued to do that really my whole life. So a lot of times I'll just break down on tour and end up living somewhere for a while. Uh, so I think the music, it's, it's almost like the pin the tail on the American experience, you know, when you get when you're ready for your next chapter in life, just go on tour and then like see what happens. Taos is an amazing spot to break down. That has a special place in our household. My wife and I got married in Taos. Oh, cool. And our oldest son is named Taos. Oh, neat. So you broke down there and then kind of drifted up a little ways into Colorado. And this is where you've lived for some years since. Yeah, I've moved. I've left many times and moved back to Colorado. I think four times throughout my time. Okay. Yeah. Well, and so with journalism, that is ultimately what you finished school with at twenty three. Your career with that, I mean, we're talking print, radio, and now, of course, you do TV, documentary filmmaking. So you've really reached quite a, a breadth of uses and vehicles and ways of telling stories and connecting with people, advocating for people. And you mentioned social justice a bit ago, and I know that when you were in New Mexico working with uh, a journalism career there and that it had to do right with social justice on behalf of people there, is there something you can tell me about what that experience is? And what is it really do you think in your heart that draws you to that kind of work? What's important to you about it? Wow. Yeah. Um I think the human spirit is so extraordinary and anytime it's messed with or tampered or tried to be controlled, like an alarm goes off. And if that's been happening to a group of people systemically for dozens and hundreds of years, you know, it can really uh, have an impact and it has an impact on everyone. I think the health of all of our people is what sets the tone for the health of ourselves. And we cannot, we cannot separate ourselves from any human experience that's taking place. We just can't, it's not every person for themselves. You know, we've created situations as a culture that have shit on a lot of people and I'm speaking specifically for America, which is all that I know, really. Right. And there's no real place where this is illustrated more so in my experience than the Southwest. So breaking down in Taos for me was not just an introduction to a people and a way of life and an art scene and a culture and a crossroads. But what is that crossroads? It's, it's all people who have been 
over time interacting with each other. But there's a there's a case where yeah, I don't it's <laughs> the politics of it are so long and hard, but essentially what I found where I found myself, I can I'll I'll say it through my experience and maybe it'll make more sense. I found myself working for an NPR affiliate in the San Luis Valley, and it was my job to create a morning half-hour news show every weekday. So I would go out in the world and explore the San Luis Valley and Taos in northern New Mexico. That's what, that was our kind of range. And I would bring back stories. And it was everything from politics to health to natural resources to you know education and everything in between. And my favorite things that I started landing on and my favorite kind of windows into the world were these cultural and traditional stories and were connecting with the native people and the Chicanos who lived in the regions and learning about their traditions and culture spanning back hundreds of years. And that's where I found a calling to communicate and capture their oral histories and to share with the world. And, and that's where I was finding enrichment. And that is really what led me into exploring many local communities of diversity and incredible, an incredible range of so many things, <laughs> everything. You went and took the LSATs and applied for law school at some point. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, that is true. I get the impression you didn't end up following through on that path. And I'm wondering why. Oh my gosh, that's a huge question. Yeah, I mean, this is very uh, probably indicative of my personality, but at that time in life, there was a fork in the road between going to law school for land and water rights or uh, traveling Europe as a touring musician. And I did go to Europe and play music. And the reason I decided not to go to law school was because I was struggling with and still try to reconcile to this day what a white person's role is in the facilitation of uh, cultures and traditions to which they don't belong. So I did end up going to live in these rural areas with these folks who were so gracious to show me their ways of life. It all changed for me one day when I was reporting on a story about the acequias, which are the irrigation canals that uh, folks dig from the natural streams that run off of the mountains and collect the snowmelt. Um, they dig ditches off of the streams with various uh, structures and water retainment systems so that they can raise and lower and command the water as they need to. That goes to their fields, which waters all their crops and their animals. So this it's this very elaborate, intricate system of dug ditches. And there are governments, and each little town has their own ditches, and there are many little villages surrounding this area. And this is where essentially little pseudo-governments are created surrounding the water. So you have this totally representative governmental system based on natural resources. And when I found out about this, I was very intrigued, especially, you know, having grown up on a farm. And I went to go learn about these ditches because they were underfunded and there's always land and water rights issues. These are the first water rights in the state and they're in jeopardy because of, you know, our consistent battles with drought. Um, so I was going to do a story about, did they have enough funds to repair these ditches? Were these farmers getting the resources they needed? And did they have enough help since the aging population was aging out of being able to work on the ditches? Kind of what was this scenario like for them as they're maintaining this culture and tradition? And the day it all changed for me was when I brought my recorder, my mini disc player, and my my microphone up to the top of the mountain to uh, report on 
the ditches and they had told me to bring a shovel. Probably they were joking, but I brought a shovel anyway. And there was a moment when this crew of us, there were like 20 of us, we rounded the corner and there was this big mudslide and they all jumped in and started shouting in Spanish and let's dig these ditches, you know, let's get the mud out of the way. And there's like this big emergency. And I didn't really know what was going on, but I threw my recorder <laughs> to the dirt and like into the, the bank of the ditch and just kind of jumped in and started digging. And as we went on through the day, clearing the waterway, this passage for the water to be able to get to their fields, it changed something in me as I worked on that ditch, as I realized the connection these folks had with their water and the maintenance of it and the stewardship of it and their land and that whole thread. And I never went back and picked up the microphone. And I actually ended up quitting my job with NPR affiliate weeks later and literally just went to go squat houses and dig ditches and live in the mountains doing this. Yeah. That's amazing. You know, it's, it's so critical and it's a reminder that while parts of our society are pulling water from places to water golf courses to supply Vegas fountain shows, you know, like those reasons. But we also have these very real needs that are longstanding, that are ancient. Yeah. People relying on the water and that that moment, I could see how that would be a catalyst in something to recognize Oh my God, they, this, it's, it's essential. It's vital to the existence of this community quite possibly. Yeah. A hundred percent. Like water is literally life without the water. There's no life forms. There's no vegetation. There's no animals. There's no crops. There's no anything. And with that, that's the risk. That's the basic intrinsic respect of this entire culture. That is what the culture stands on. And that's where it blossoms. And that's like, that's the initial understanding that everybody just has and from which other understandings can occur. And living with those systems, it's just something that really spoke to me. It's like, you know, maybe what's happening systematically in America isn't right or working for most people, but you don't know what the alternative could be. And then you're presented with this way of life that's so simple and so basic and so rich in, in education and so rich in spirit and honoring. And like you, you were saying earlier, the hands-on elements of every single thing these people need, they can do themselves or know someone who can. It's a system that's based on barter economy and raising of your own everything. And there's something so beautiful about that self-sufficiency. The other day, someone was talking about the recession of 2008. And I was thinking like, I don't remember a recession. And then I realized it's because I was living in San Luis and for better or for worse, kind of how I feel now, there wasn't an interruption between the reality that I found myself in and my current way of life. I want to ask you, we'll move on here to music and to the fact that we've mentioned the spirits, but you also were part of a band before that, uh, Eros and the Eschaton, is that right? Uh, Eschaton, yeah. Eschaton, okay. And you found your way to Colorado with that band, right? And then did that come to an end? Is that something you're still part of? 
So that's a band that I had with my son's father before we had a kiddo. And I was living in Colorado and had been living here on and off for years when I met him. Um, But I was living in Colorado when we met and then we traveled with other projects and stuff for a while. Um, And we ended up having Leo and he and I, his dad and I started making music together which we originally called the Golden Hearts. And it was just him and I on all the instruments. And we both loved drumming and playing all the instruments. So we kind of got a chance to flex all our muscles. We were just kind of recording for fun and turned into like kind of rock, lo-fi rock music, I guess. And then we planned a tour. Um, We had a motor home and we had planned on hitting the road with our son when he was a baby. So we did like a three-month tour out to uh, New England and then down to the Carolinas. And that was another case of the motorhome probably isn't going to make it another thousand miles. So we should find a place to set up shop for a while, (laughs) which ended up being Greensboro, North Carolina. And while we were living there, which we ended up living there for almost a couple of years, we really started playing with that band. We had to rename ourselves after we got a cease and desist from the guitar player for the Four Non Blondes who had a band apparently in San Francisco called the Golden Hearts and was very threatened by our band camp recordings. Wow. Uh, we ended up changing our name to Eros and the Eschaton, which is a Terrence McKenna reference. He's one of my all-time favorite thinkers. Um, okay. And uh, yeah, then we got signed to Barnon Records and did a lot of touring and going up to New York and spent a few years doing a lot of festivals and just playing a ton of shows. And we eventually came back to Colorado because North Carolina was, people can say what they will about Colorado Springs and its conservative nature, but until you've lived in Greensboro, North Carolina. (laughs) So I'm curious about this breaking down and setting up shop wherever that is, right? Because what does that take? How to, that's a a real go with the flow sort of, I think, um, take on life that sounds pretty adventurous. Maybe it even sounds a bit sexy, but it's got to be a bit challenging too. It does sound very sexy hindsight. And there, there is a lot of adventureness and trust and there's a lot of good stuff wrapped in there, but mostly at the time, I think it's just stressful. Yeah. Well, and you've got to presumably find livelihood somehow. So are you trying to find jobs in the town or is that when you really start making a push to say, well, we got to become part of the local music scene. It's got to work. That's where the journalism piece always came in. So it's like, that's the formula. It's go on tour with your band, break down, find a new place to live, get a job in journalism. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, so Eros and the Eschaton, then that, that band has run its course. Is that true? Oh, yeah. True to say? Yeah, we haven't played together in a long time. Okay. Well, and that, you know, it's a common enough experience, right, that anybody who has a career and a life with music and with bands, they're in multiple bands, often enough at the same time, often enough in a a serial kind of way throughout time, this band and then another and then another. But I'm wondering with that kind of situation, and I did not know that that was with your son's father. I was wondering if going from one band, this thing that you're part of, and if that's kind of like a breakup in itself, and, and of course now, you know, I'm, I'm, I realize I'm asking about this being part of a relationship romantically, intimately with another being, uh, you know, what did that time period for you kind of stir personally, creatively, and then, then maybe how did that lead to where you are now with spirits and, and a whole new life, new band? Yeah, I think like 
probably for myself personally, similarly to relationships as with bands, you know, if you're missing something or craving something that you weren't receiving, you're probably going to go looking for that thing in the next one. So for me, when Eros and the Eschaton ended, I was just looking for an opportunity to make music fun again. The business and administrative side of running a band that is touring and on a label is really exhausting. And I didn't really want to do that anymore. And I felt a lot of pressure to do more all the time. And as a mom and having to work and have a career outside of music, I never anticipated music being my everything because there's so many things I love to do. Music is always, again, an enhancement and a compliment and a wonderful hobby and a joy and a creative outlet. It's not something that I necessarily feel I need to be monetarily compensated for, although it's awesome when that happens. And I love being able to make an income with music. I feel also very fortunate to do that. But there's a give and take for me that I found and why I was really kind of bitter about, I think, my experience at the end of that really had only to do with the notion that the music business requires more all the time, that no one's ever going to be satisfied. Whenever you hit another milestone, there's not a lot of congratulatory time or resting on laurels. It's all, what's the next thing? And particularly with music as a business, it takes like an insane team and an insane amount of everything to really make a living at it and to be able to be successful where that's your only thing that you're doing. So treating it like that's what it is while you have an actual life is just a really funny thing that I felt like was the elephant in the room. So really for me, Spirits was about just kind of breaking free again and and getting back to the source of just making music for creations and creativity's sake and, and experimenting and, and to see what was going to happen. And with Spirits, you played the famed Red Rocks, what, last summer? Yeah, we did Film on the Rocks where they pair uh, local bands with um, movies. Okay. How how was that experience to be able to play such a a well-regarded, renowned venue? It was fun. It was really fun. It was fun to share it with friends. And it was really fun to have my son there. Um, He really likes the green room experience. (laughs) Been spoiled. And I think, you know, it was so funny. We have played several festivals where they have really posh green room setups. And it's funny. We were somewhere. I can't remember where we were playing but it was somewhere that I don't even know if they had a green room and he said something like man is there a green room I could really use a massage right now and that's (laughs) oh you're spoiled buddy it is not all like that (laughs) and this brings us to your dream job what you currently do what is so dreamy about this job just tell me you do so many things with so many creative things with RMPBS just whatever you have to say let it rip dreaminess Oh, it's so dreamy. I think, you know, anytime you can envision something and then actualize it, it just feels like a personal success when I can imagine a project, whether it's a new TV show or a format or a segment or, you know, a documentary or whatever, wherever my mind goes, whether it's something I've been assigned or something I want to take on or something I'm proposing to take on your mind can really, I love just the way brains work and the foresight that human beings have. And I kind of just let my 
you know, evolutionary body take over to trust that, you know, whether it be ancestral lineage or just everything I've learned in my career, having these different media tools and these kind of different, you know, skill sets at my hands, that I can just be used as like this vessel to kind of midwife these ideas into the physical realm. And it's just so exciting for me to work in media. I love writing. I love all the technical stuff. I love Adobe and Premiere and recording and editing. And like, I just adore being in front of the camera and being behind the camera and like literally every aspect of production is such a joy to me. And to be in a situation where I get to do all of those things and now where I get to create brand new things based on those things, it's just like never ending. (laughs) So for me, my dream job means, you know, like you were saying, getting to incorporate all of these different elements into my day to day. That just sounds amazing. I'm so happy for anybody who gets to land an opportunity that makes them happy. Yeah. And I'm, I'm stumped a lot of the time too. I mean, I'm constantly learning and, you know, the technical scenario is like troubleshooting is still like 80% of my day. Like, again, it can something that can sound kind of sexy or can seem one way. And production is the opposite of that. Production is all blood and sweat and tears, you know, um, which is also probably why I love it. But I don't want to make it seem like it's all this. I do think it's flowing and seamless in one direction, but it's like I'm constantly being challenged. I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly learning new things about myself and about how to communicate and, you know, how to share my vision. So it, it is a constant process. Oh, sure. I, I think it's absolutely critical and and very key to a successful um, sort of life in, in this way creatively is that you're able to become uh, comfortable with the discomfort, to be able to push into those places and be vulnerable, which I feel all the time with doing these things. I consider myself an introvert. So having the uh, energy to try to intelligently present questions and thoughts with you here. I put myself in this situation nearly every week with people. And I think that that's what it's like for any creative person when they're pushing those lines, they're trying to stretch into new, maybe just subject matter, skill sets. So yeah, no, I, I understand completely what what you're getting at there. And I commend you. I, I think it's amazing that you're able and willing to keep walking into that fire of vulnerability. It takes so much courage to be creative. Well, thank you. Yeah. And likewise, and I realize I just recognize sometimes I can talk kind of in a flowery way about, you know, the majesty of creation and just to stop and just say, there might be somebody out there who thinks that that's just means that it's easy all the time. And I just, yeah, I don't, I don't want, I don't want to say I don't want things to be easy because I do want to invite ease into life for sure. I just know that if I don't feel challenged and I'm not a little bit uncomfortable, then I'm probably not learning. And if it's not dynamic, then what's the point in sharing that, especially with my job and what you're doing too, you need that dynamic, dynamic, dynamicism (laughs) to create a compelling story or a project or, or thought to share. Well, it's great to point that out because I do think that one of the common myths that exists for people who 
spend their whole lives telling themselves these stories. Well, I'm not creative. And they look at other people, especially in today's world with social media. If you look on Instagram and all these beautiful, perfect pictures and perfect things that are created and so on, it, it, it's a representation of almost fantasy, right? Because we all edit and select and we can just show the best stuff and we can make it look so easy. So I can completely appreciate that you're, you're clarifying. Yeah, this is a challenge, but the attitude that you have with it and the joy and love you have for it, the gratitude I think makes all the difference. Right. And then you take that discomfort, become comfortable with it and amazing things happen. Yeah. And I think that's so beautifully said. Thank you. And I think for myself, like allowing just the trust that I can have in life to allow for that myself is going to be in each situation that is most beneficial, not just to me, but to my community and my workspace and that whatever I'm here put forward to do on this earth isn't really my choice or my decision necessarily. It's what I feel called to do, but I want that to be whatever it is that's going to be the best thing for everyone. So I always leave open that line of service to be able to, I think my adaptability and the willingness to go with the flow or change is just based in that notion that like, you know, although I can, I can steer the ship and have a clear understanding and discernment of what I am going to let and not let into my life, the greater path is just going to take me wherever I am best of service. And if I trust that, then I'm more open to like what happens without having a preference about, well, it didn't turn out the certain way I thought it was going to be. Well, newsflash, eh, honey, it is never going <laughs> to. So, Yeah, we have to get so okay with that. And <laughs> it's so hard to do that when, um, when you think that it's going so smoothly for everybody else. So I think this is incredibly... Um, a valuable bit of, of something to share because someone can watch you on TV. They can watch you up on stage and think she has it all and it's easy and it's never easy. Yeah. And being on stage in particular, I do love performance. I'm also very socially anxious and, and I've interestingly, since I was young, really found the stage, whether it's theatrical or music or whatever, as or even just public speaking has always felt like a really positive through way for me to express myself, ironically, without having to um, like sacrifice a certain like, like, so like anxiety. Um, but performance is kind of the through way for me to express all the things that aren't working out. <laughs> so it's funny because, yeah, based on what you just said. Um, and I think, you know, especially artists or, you know, a lot of people probably understand that the expression is um, the discord expression comes from feeling the discord. So we wouldn't have art if we felt comfortable all the time. Right, right. You know, I want to ask you about your spiritual perspective because you have said a number of things throughout this whole conversation. Uh, you're talking about being called to this work, about it not necessarily being choice. You've talked about being resourced for some of these experiences, these challenging emotional uh, experiences, especially like what we're all going through again with the pandemic. So yeah, spiritual perspective, where is it that you draw uh this sort of view and understanding of yourself and of the world and of your place as a creative being in it. Like interestingly, God has always played like an enormous role in my life and like my relationship to God and whatever that is, is something that has driven my life. 
However, God does not look like what, again, what I'm told God is supposed to look like. So that was definitely an ongoing theme from a young age. I've always felt very connected spiritually and feel very at home in the realm of the unseen. The material world for me is a stretch. It's actually really hard for me to wrap my head around what's happening on the physical plane. It seems very strange and bizarre and alien-esque. Like matter itself is just really funky. And like the spiritual realm or like paying attention, kind of like what I was saying earlier about listening to the earth and the patterns of weather and just being able to feel things in silence um, feels more peaceful and at home and I can understand that a little bit better. So I can't really say how or why that is, but I definitely have always felt that really strongly. The interesting thing to me is just how that my definition of God has clashed with others over the years. Like it became very evident to me early on. My family was not religious. I think because they'd been raised in religious homes, they were not inclined to put that on their children. So although I attended church infrequently as a kid, or if I spent the night at a girlfriend's house at a young age, we'd, you know, we'd go to church with them, especially in rural Minnesota, you know, the next morning. But essentially, I arrived in Minnesota as a third grader, a heathen, because my parents didn't attend church. And I remember my teacher asking me in front of the classroom, just by way of like, what do your parents do for a living? And I'm like, well, they used to do this one thing, but now they're organic vegetable farmers. Everyone's like, okay, what's that? Because this is like 1993 or whatever. <laughs> And then they're like, what church do you go to? Because that's just like how you get to know someone. And I was like, we don't go to church. And there was like audible gasp in the third grade <laughs> classroom. So, but then I don't know. And it, that, but then I felt a really close kinship with God and would definitely pray and felt my relationship with whatever that means to me changing. And, and I would learn about that as I was younger. At one point, God was something I feared, you know, at one point I had a much healthier relationship with God. So as a child, just kind of navigating what is God and how, how do I know that I don't fit in this container of what everyone is telling me it is, but I still feel it so strongly. And that really has been most of my life. You know, if I love going to church and I love experiencing God, you know, in, in these different forms or in different situations. And usually when I'm in those situations, the people who are worshiping with me, at least in that religious context, I feel like we're talking about the same thing, but I know that they don't think that what I'm seeing is what they're looking at. And it's just a very strange, it's just another one of those kind of generational hierarchical system things that you may have your own meaning and definition of. And someone else is sitting right next to you saying that they're talking about the same thing, but they have a totally different perspective of what that is. How do you find the strength in all of that to continue being yourself? You, you mentioned earlier feeling like kind of the oddball to other people, right? Like I, I don't think you use that word oddball, but I have also felt that so often where I, I'm just not sure you guys understand me and I don't feel like I fit in here. And I'm wondering how, because I feel like from all the things I'm hearing from you, there's quite a bit of strength in you and recognition of yourself. And that's not to say or take away anything that you've done in effort to understand that. I think it's hard for all of us to ultimately clear away the noise and listen to that innate intelligence that's trying to guide us. But I feel like you are very strong in, in where, at least where you have come to with that. And I'm curious, how have you managed to be strong when other people are gasping because you don't see it the way they do, like you described when you were a kid. 
with the God thing, it's like, I always feel so much joy that it's like, like inconsequential if someone else is, I don't want to say offended by it, but if someone else is understand, you know, if someone else is going to judge my understanding, like my experience to me is unshakable in, you know, and we could spend a whole other hour talking about like spiritual experiences or just, you know, convening with God or, or making space for that, you know, as a child or throughout life. Again, it's something that silence and growing up the way I did and semi-isolation at times really lent itself to. It's like, well, there's nothing else to do. Why don't I experiment with praying and meditation or, you know, there's there's no, literally there's nothing else to do. Um, I know I felt really, and like you're saying, similarly to maybe how I felt in high school or, you know, if I'd go to church with my grandmother, she would just be wringing her hands like, you know, oh, well, you can't accept communion because you haven't done X, Y, and Z. And, you know, you can't participate in this certain ritual because you haven't hit this mark or you didn't do this as a kid. Like all the rules and, you know, gateways to God and kind of like boundaries that were put in place about you have to do this before you can do that. That part was hard for me because, you know, just because. Right. Sure. For some reason, even if I felt judged, I as uh, at least with the with the God or you know spirituality aspect, whatever it is in me that feels that feels it to the like degree that like I know I'm cool with God and like if I'm cool with God and cool with myself, then again it's like there's no question mark for me about my relationship with God. So even if someone else is gonna see that as not looking like theirs does. That part doesn't ruffle me. I just get a smile and I'm like, oh, we're all one. Like, it's okay. <laughs> you know, you don't you don't know that yet. <laughs> you know, I think we're in our own locations on our own paths here, right? <laughs> so our, our own understandings and the work that we're all doing here to, to understand ourselves or understand this thing that we're part of. I want to ask you overall about your optimism. You seem like an optimistic person. Sound fair? Yeah, I'm healthily skeptical too, but I have a really good sense of humor. I know you also um, feel the world as an empath does. And, you know, talking about uh, society and politics here, do you find it particularly difficult at all to exist in this time where, as I heard it described, I think by Ira Glass uh, of NPR the other day in a podcast interview he was doing, that we're in a time where every event or even every idea you know, there's there's this entrenched, maybe even aggressive or harsh argument for an alternate reality, an alternate set of facts about the exact same event or idea. And I, I personally find this incredibly challenging. Sometimes I feel even, you know, confused or even fragile, and I just want to withdraw from it. And I'm curious, how are you handling these times? Hmm. Well, as a journalist, I haven't paid attention to the news. In a really long time, you know, in my early days of reporting on daily news, it, maybe a year, year and a half went by before I recognized that it's all Mad Libs and you could just replace nouns and verbs and we're just telling the same tale over and over. And the reason I gravitate now toward long form journalism and feel grateful to be able to spend five minutes or an hour talking about one subject is because in the regular news realm, quote unquote, you get 90 seconds tops and nothing is going to have context or make much sense other than being boiled down to its most minute points that may not even matter when something has been diluted that much or yeah so i really don't pay attention to 
a lot of things. The vibe that I feel right now is like so much less of that. And, and that may just be myself, but the, I don't know if I feel it today. And actually this week is the first week that feels like people are getting really stir crazy on a mass level to me. But like up until last week, um, I would say I felt things overall were quieter than normal. And in that quiet space is where I was really feeling like, oh, I hope people use this as an opportunity, like you were saying, to tap into um, themselves because there's so much ample room if we want to do that to be able to now that we probably don't ever get, myself included. So often we're just rush, 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 and it's all about that thing. And this has given us a chance, I think, to shift focus and to step back, take a breath, maybe for a lot of people experience what it feels like to slow down and breathe, period, instead of just get up, work eight, 10, 12 hours, go to bed, get up and do it again, as if that that and our identities with that, as if that's all that there is. This brings us to the final question, which I ask everyone as sort of a summary thought. Uh, you know, this whole conversation has very much been about the humanness and creativity in your life and in your experience, your story. But this summary question is, how do you live humanness and creativity in your life now? Yeah, I love that question. And I would say that part has completely transformed in this time of home isolation. The way that I view Similarly to how it seems as though the world has quieted and that priorities have naturally surfaced with all of us in a crisis situation, I can feel that subset both in my work and then in my own creative work, you know, who the people are who have naturally emerged as collaborators and where many of my close collaborators find themselves at life right now. It's a lot like in many ways, a lot of people I'm talking to, something had happened in their lives or they had made some kind of change or gone through some kind of change that set them up to live in this time in a slightly more realized or like healthier, sane, like context. So that, um, that's something I'm really paying attention to. And just the quality of connection again, because I'm not, you know, around hundreds of people a week, I'm, I'm, there's the people that I'm interacting with are they're so just less in numbers. So those interactions hold more space and weight. And then of course we can choose who we're interacting with. So all of those things have kind of added up to this really, the situation where honestly, for the first time ever in my adult life, I feel like I have a really good balance of what is going in and out of my psyche and like who is in my realm and what we're working on and how I'm able to handle stress and how I'm looking at um, my pacing of myself, not knowing how long this is going to last, just the self pacing and self change, slowing everything way down just feels really good right now. Oh, I think we all need every, we, we need to practice slowing down. Right. And, and so I think that's fantastic. And I, I thank you very much, Kate, for all your time and your thoughts and your insights. Uh, I love following your work. And yeah, just I'm so honored to have you here. Thank you for being part of this Humanity Podcast. 
Thank you for letting me ramble at you for an hour and a half, Adam. I really appreciate you and I appreciate what you do for our community and bringing us all together. Thank you. That's it with Kate Perdoni in today's Humanity Conversation of Humanness and Creativity. You can learn more about Kate in the show notes published on our website at humanitude.co. And as always, reviews on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, and other players are helpful for what we're doing here. When you can spare a few seconds to shine some light back on Humanitu and everyone you listen to here, we'd appreciate your review. Together, we can cultivate a more thoughtful, kind, and creative world. If you have feedback on this conversation or the Humanitu podcast series, you can send me an email at adam at humanitu.co or reach me by Instagram DM at humanitu. And now, the question I ask you after every episode. How are you living humanness and creativity in your life? I'm Adam Williams, creator and host of the Humanitu Podcast. Thanks for being here. Mm-hmm.